Sirs, moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for people who love British military history and a damn good story. Today's a short episode. It's a reworking of my film from the YouTube channel about the Jameson Raid from December 1895 to January 1896. I live in Johannesburg and so I took the time to go and find some of the key locations, walk around them, take pictures and record audio. You won't be able to sadly see the video images during this podcast, but I think you'll still get a good sense of where I'm at and what it's like. If you do want to watch the YouTube video, just go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash at redcoathistory and search for the Jameson Raid. You'll find it. The Jameson Raid was important because it was a big catalyst that led to the Second Anglo-Boer War, a huge and very important war that shaped the modern day South Africa. But before we get stuck into the story, I want to draw your attention to something new and exciting. I've started a Patreon page. For anyone who doesn't know, Patreon is a website where you essentially donate to the work that we're doing here at Redcoat History, and in exchange you get extra content. So what I've done is I've set it up so that all my videos get posted ad-free on the Patreon page and ahead of schedule. So I'm usually two or three weeks ahead of YouTube in terms of producing the videos, which means you get extra videos ahead of schedule and with no ads. I'll also be posting behind the scenes photos and videos, and it's a place where I can be reached easily with messages and comments. I also wanna start sharing my sources there better, and eventually when I finally get the time, post PDFs of the scripts of the videos. So I think there's a lot to be gained if you're interested in joining. It's $5 a month, I think that's about £4.50. And there's also a free tier where you get some of the benefits, but not all. So if you get an opportunity and you're interested and you want to support the show and see the study of British military history continue to grow, then please do go to it. It's Patreon, P-A-R-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash history, all one word. Patreon.com slash history. All right, guys, let's get stuck in. Thanks a lot. So this is the spot, this noisy site close to Soweto, southwest of Johannesburg, where the Jameson Raid came to an inglorious and embarrassing end. Have you heard of it? Probably not. And judging by the lack of maintenance of the site here, I don't think many locals have either. But in today's film, I'm turning detective to track down what relevant and interesting sites can still be found and visited. On the 2nd of January 1896, Dr. Leander Star Jameson, great name, and his surviving officers surrendered here to the Boers after a series of short, sharp military encounters that had massive repercussions around the world. In the great scheme of British colonial history, the farce that was the Jameson Raid seems like a small, insignificant event, but it was a big deal at the time and one of the main catalysts of the Anglo-Boer War a conflict whose repercussions shaped the modern South Africa and still echo across the country today. So like most things in the world, money, or in this case gold, was the root cause of everything. Now bear with me because this whole thing is quite complicated and still stirs up emotions here in South Africa. I'll try my best to get my facts right and still keep the story as simple as possible. In 1884, gold was discovered where I am in Witzvatersrand area of the Transvaal. That gold made it the richest nation in Southern Africa, and soon immigrants, mainly English-speaking ones, began to pour into the area. 
So these foreigners were known as Eightlanders, and their huge numbers caused the Afrikaners here to fear that their own language, culture, and political dominance could become undermined. Given the dominance of Britain throughout the region, and let's be honest, their hunger for access to more gold and diamonds, the Boers probably had good reason to be concerned. Many of the Eightlanders became rich, but they also grew angry with the Transvaal government, who denied them the vote and also governed this place badly in their opinion. A group of Eightlanders called Reformers, backed by the famous or infamous Cecil John Rhodes, demanded the franchise. Many of the Reform Committee were members of this place, the Rand Club, which still exists in downtown Johannesburg, although it is a new building. You can still imagine these wealthy businessmen, mainly British, but not exclusively so, sitting down here, having a game of billiards, drinking, drinking their whiskey and soda as they plan the demise of Paul Kruger's government. So when the Eightlanders' call for a voting franchise was refused, the reformers began to stir up trouble. Rhodes organised the smuggling of arms to them, and talk of rebellion began to grow. Rhodes, as well as being a super-rich mining magnate, was also governor of the Cape, and he wanted to see the two Boer republics, Transvaal and the Orange Free State, come under British control. He sent his friend, Dr Leander Starr Jameson, with around 500 men, many of them from the Matabele Land Mounted Police, to await events and be ready to march to Johannesburg to assist the uprising which he assumed was going to happen. Jameson was originally a medical man, but in 1890 he had given up his medical practice to take part in the expedition to Mashonaland in what is now Zimbabwe. He soon became part of Cecil Rhodes' inner circle, and despite being, let's be honest, a rank amateur in military matters, it was decided that he was just the man to lead this daring dash into Johannesburg. So as a side note, if you do get to Johannesburg and want to come to the Rand Club, I really recommend doing so, and particularly coming down to the bookshop in the basement, which is James Findlay's bookshop. It's all collectible books. Don't tell the missus, I've already spent a fortune, probably going to spend some more. But as an aside, James also does have a collection of books about the Jameson Raid. Uh, there's pictures from London Illustrated News in the background there. He's pretty much got everything. So James is such a nice guy, he's even given me a quick tour of the building. James, what are we, what are we looking at here? Chris, this is a photograph of the Reform Committee. And what's quite interesting, um, the word Reform Committee Transvaal is demonstrating that this is a group of people that wanted reform in Johannesburg. So it's quite interesting that it echoes today where we have service delivery protests in Johannesburg. So right here you can Im imagine back in those days you had dirt roads, you had inadequate stormwater drains, um, you know, ineffective rubbish collection, horse manure everywhere. So that's actually what they were protesting about. And remember they didn't have a vote. So they couldn't vote in a committee that will address these issues. So that is what they were trying to do. They were demonstrating, and they called themselves a reform committee because they wanted reform in Johannesburg. So I think, I think that's, that's um, a very important point, um, that it wasn't necessarily just a, a means of you know, expanding the, the, the empire. They really had a legitimate gripe. So the Rand Club is packed with interesting artefacts, books, rooms, architecture, but one of the most interesting things is this. 
This is actually a bronze of the left hand of Leander Starr Jameson taken on his deathbed. Jameson and his 500 men spent Christmas kicking their heels, but eventually he decided to act, ignoring orders certain that his actions would force the Eightlanders into rebellion. He crossed from over there over to where I am now in Transvaal on the 29th of December 1895. From the outset things began to fall apart. Instead of cutting the telegraph lines to Pretoria, it said that his men who he sent on the mission were so drunk that they cut the line to Cape Town and a farmer's fence instead. This meant that news of the incursion quickly reached President Kruger and the Boer commandos were called out. Hundreds of armed burghers were soon on their way to confront Jameson. So the first real opposition to Jameson's advance took place here on the hills behind me in the vicinity of Krugersdorp on the 1st of January. About 300 Boers, including 250 men of the Potchefstroom Commando, formed up and were then attacked by Jameson. Just before 5pm there was a short artillery bombardment and then elements of Jameson's force, led by his second in command, John Christopher Willoughby, who was an experienced British soldier, moved forward. But the Boers had dug in. They were behind big heavy rocks as well up here. And their heavy rifle fire immediately caused casualties amongst the attackers and forced them to withdraw. So this was a mining area and it's hard to tell now but it was good defensive ground. There was big rocks for the Boers to hide behind and there was the Queen's Battery mine dump which they also took full advantage of. One of the officers then came to Jameson and reported that the route south looked to be open and, leaving a small rearguard to cover their manoeuvre, the raiders moved off in the direction of Randfontein. So close to where the raiders bivouacked on that night of the 1st of January is this small graveyard where some of the troopers who were killed during their move on the morning of the 2nd of January are buried. It's called the Randfontein Estates Goldmine Military Cemetery and it's next to the Krugersdorp Randfontein Railway Line, which is just over there. So this headstone, which is the only one that's still legible, says, Sacred to the memory of troopers Beattie Powell and Davis, who fell in action 2nd of January 1896. It wasn't a relaxing night rest for the exhausted troops when they reached this bivouac point. The following description appears in the book From Manifesto to Trial, which was anonymously published in 1896. It says, It was decided to form lager and a camp was eventually pitched in a suitable position on the brink of a large flay with precipitous sides affording excellent cover. Hardly were the squares formed when the Boers again opened fire, killing one man and wounding several Orders were immediately given that no lights were to be lit in the camp. The only light allowed being in the tent of one of the wagons temporarily used as a hospital for the wounded. This light afforded a good mark for the Boers who kept up an incessant fire. The rattle of the guns being deafening. Most of their bullets however went overhead on account of the well-chosen position occupied by the column. The Boers were also very advantageously placed behind the Potchefstroom Railway earthworks. A lot of the troopers' horses stampeded and were lost. Some of the troops took advantage of their position to snatch a few hours' sleep, notwithstanding the din caused by the firing of the Boers, who evidently intended to harass the now worn-out men.
And so after that tough night at 4am on the morning of the 2nd, the exhausted men stood to arms and were soon moving off. To avoid the well-entrenched Boers, they moved rapidly south, passing through Randfontein. But they were forced to skirmish the whole way, stopping regularly to exchange fire with their pursuers. So at about 7.30 in the morning, Jameson and his men approached Dawncop Ridge, which you can see over my shoulder behind me. It's another dominating feature, and you can see why the Boers decided that was the place to make their stand. Captain Charles Coventry and his men charged the ridge, but Coventry was badly wounded, as was Captain Barry, who commanded C Troop. He later died of his injuries. With the Boers now picking them off, the demoralised survivors tried to escape but to no avail. They took up positions here on Flakfontein Farm in a kraal and a servant's house. There was no longer any chance of victory or even of escape. No force of armed English miners were sallying out of Johannesburg to rescue them. The game was up, just in front of the Dawncop Ridge. In a heavy firefight, the raiders' Maxim guns, with no water to cool them, soon became too hot to handle. And then the Boer artillery began to fire accurately, smashing this position. At 9.15am the ceasefire was sounded and a white flag made from a domestic worker's apron was waved. The battle was over. In this crawl, Dr Jameson's men made their last stand on the 2nd of January 1896. This monument, erected in 1913 in memory of the fallen at Flakfontein, was moved from the original site to this crawl in 1963 by the West Rand Historical Society. So the granite stone here, if you can hear me above the wind, says Flakfontein, which was the name of this farm, in loving memory of those who fell on the 2nd of January 1896. This building here, I'm told, is new and was actually on the site where the original house and the original plaque and tree were. So the memorial is the other side of that building on the other side of that fence. And here inside the new factory compound, is the original tree. I don't know if it's been moved, but this was where there used to be a house. And this, according to the stone here, is where Dr. Jameson and his men finally surrendered on the 2nd of January. This was the site of the cottage. And this tree stump is pretty much all that remains. A number of dead from the battle are buried here in Burgers Hoop Cemetery in Krugersdorp. There's a memorial to the brave Boers who died, as well as the graves of three Jameson raiders. Just shows you how complicated history is. This Boer's name was MacDonald. Captain Barry's headstone has fallen over, but many of them here have. It's a very old graveyard. Died 31st of January. He died from his wounds. This one says, in memoriam, Trooper P.S. Wild, BSA, British South Africa Police, son of S.J. and J.P. Wild, Woodstock, C.P., presumably Cape Province, died 17th of January 1896. He must have died of his wounds in his 25th year. Rest in peace. The British survivors were taken to Pretoria and jailed, though they were later let go and sent back to London. Some of the Reform Committee were found guilty of high treason and sentenced to death, though this was later commuted and they were able to leave the country shortly after. 
The scene was now set for relations between Britain and the Boers to continue to deteriorate, a deterioration that would eventually lead to the Second Anglo-Boer War. But that's a story for another day. So there you have it, guys. I hope you found that interesting. I hope you enjoyed it. I did make that about three or four years ago, but nothing's really changed as far as I'm aware in terms of the locations, although I'm probably due for another visit. Lots of good episodes coming up in the near future. We've got one on the colonial marines who were former American slaves who ended up fighting for the British during the War of 1812. I'm really looking forward to that one. It's absolutely fascinating. We've got a look at Britain's conflicts in Japan in the 1860s. Did you know that Bainit did meet Katana in a few big battles over there? So you'll enjoy that one. And hopefully good friend of the show Cam Simpson is going to be back soon to talk about the battles of Umzintani. Another one you've probably never heard of. I hadn't either. Anyway, guys, I will leave you in peace. Please subscribe. Please share this episode with anybody you think will be interested. And we'll speak again next week.